This is the GP Soccer Podcast with your host, Giovanni Piccini. everyone, Giovanni Piccini here, your host of the GP Soccer Podcast. Welcome to all of you, my wonderful listening audience from literally around the world. Buongiorno, buonasera, as we say in Italian. Um, you, if you know me, uh, even if you don't know me and you listen to my podcast, you, you can't help but discover about uh, my, okay, I'll say it, my obsession with Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I have been following Bruce Springsteen since September, since September 25th, 1978. Um, and have seen him, uh, oh yes, 62 times and counting. And, uh, and, and most, most recently, since uh, I've been following him on the most recent tour and, uh, you know, uh, and, and also, you know, lamenting over the fact that uh, he had to shut down or postpone the, the, uh, the remaining, ast- uh, remaining dates of his tour because of a peptic ulcer d- d- disease. A lot of my, uh, my soccer friends, instead of saying, hey, you know, how's the season going or, you know, how's your podcast going? The very first words out of their mouth is, how you doing with this whole Bruce Springsteen thing? Um, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Uh, so long as Mr. Springsteen is okay and he's going to return to touring as he will in 2024, I guess everything is all is okay. But I had a chuckle. Uh, it kind of hit me the other day when a, a friend and colleague of mine, you know, again, like like others, asked me how I was dealing with this whole Bruce Springsteen thing. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back on the road uh, in 2024, following Bruce literally around the world. And racking up uh, shows 63, 64, well, on and on and on. In any event, moving on here today. Uh, you know, we're, we're approaching here the GP Soccer Podcast, uh, the midway point of Season 9. I, I, I mean, I can't believe uh, we just we kicked off the show back in September. Here we are toward late October as I record this particular program. Uh, next week will be the midway point, and we go right into uh, the uh, winter months into December. We will wrap up Season 9, uh, take a little bit of a hiatus, as I always do, and then come back stronger than ever for season 10. Uh, today on the show, uh, in our uh, conversation with the coach segment, we're going to have Tommy Geis, a good friend, great colleague, a wonderful coach, clinician, uh, coach educator from Massachusetts Youth Soccer, where he and I will chat about uh, managing behavior, managing behavior. And, and uh, as we'll touch upon, you know, you can't be an effective teacher, and I use that word for, for a reason, unless you can manage behavior. And I'm always very thankful that in my own professional life, I spent 24 years in public education uh, as a public school teacher. I taught health and physical education. And it was a great teacher for me over those many years on how to manage behavior. I managed situations that were as simple as a few kids in a classroom teaching a health health class, or as many as 90 kids. Yes, 90 kids and me in a physical education environment. Now you're going to say, Giovanni, you had 90 kids in one class? The answer to that is yes. I'll spare you the gory details as to scheduling and some of the things that were going on during the during that particular year when I was a phys ed teacher. But yeah, um, and I managed them, by the way. I, I managed all 90 kids. I do say so with a bit of pride. Uh, and those things that I learned, you know, as, as a teacher uh, in those various uh, 
environments that, that challenge me with, with different types of behavior, both good, bad, and everything in the middle. Um, it only made me a, a better you know, uh, manager of behavior on the soccer field, which I still use to this day. So Tommy and I are going to have a little bit of a, of a conversation about managing behavior and being an effective uh, management of, manager of behavior when you're teaching the game of soccer. And in the coach's corner section, my good friend, Dr. Bill Steffen, We'll be touching upon some goalkeeping and uh, the fine line between, you know, gimmick uh, being uh, gimmicky and uh, being creative, and the importance of using live players, real players, uh, in in uh, having an effective goalkeeper training session. You're going to enjoy that uh, that segment of the show with Dr. Bill Stephan. I want to take um, the few minutes I have in the opening segment. You know, I take out you know 10, 15 minutes or so to tackle a variety of things or one one thing in particular, and I decided to spend the bulk of this uh, on the recent United States-Germany uh, friendly, which took place recently down in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I was looking forward to the match for a couple of reasons. Uh, we saw the reemergence of Gio Reyna and uh, the first game uh, back in the fold after the, the debacle that took place in the World Cup with he um, and uh, you know head coach Greg Berhalter and, and the, the the Reina family, which was nothing short of a soap opera, but it appears that they've kind of moved on, and, and, and Gio was on the field for the uh, for the kickoff of that particular match. I was also curious because Germany has a new coach. Hansi Flick was let go after an abysmal start, and their uh, brand spanking uh, you know new coach Julian Nagelsmann uh, began uh, his era of, of coaching the German national team, and he, and he walked away with a, a rather comfortable victory against. The United States, as I noted in uh, you know, in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, as far as the American side, I th- uh, you know, and I guess the the first half, I'll, I'll kind of go there. The first half, first half, I thought was very, very entertaining, back and forth. Um, you know, we saw the Americans have the capacity to go after Germans uh, with great speed, great athleticism. Uh, you know, that that was typically that was typified by Christian Pulisic's goal, where he, you know, he took on defenders. Um, you know, in the in the the tail that the, the latter parts of the mid third getting into the attacking third uh got in uh close to the box turned the corner and hit a wonderful shot to, to for the to put the united states up one nil i guess exposing some of the weaknesses of the german defense uh in terms of a player you know uh through his his creativity um you know breaking breaking down breaking down defenses um the second half was a completely different story where, where the germans really showed who they were and the americans unfortunately showed who, who and what they were there was a significant disparity in, in terms of the, of the talent. Uh, and the Germans went on to score three consecutive goals and, as you know, went on to win three, three to one. Um, the, nerd of, the nerd in me uh, was curious to see how uh, Julian Nagelsmann would have coached the team. When you have a new coach, typically they bring their, you know, their own style, their own you know, structure, uh, philosophy as to how, how they want to play the game. And this was very evident from the outset. And I had done no research. I wanted to go into watching this game and watching uh, Coach Nagelsmann work fresh. Um, and I was struck by the tactics of when they had the ball. They 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 basically compacted th- almost like three center backs, and you know pinged it uh, you know back and forth, and then eventually it would hit a very strong pass you know to a, a supporting player who would come to them, breaking a line, sometimes breaking two lines, and then sometimes it would actually go back. And then they would find another option to go forward. It was almost an up and back type of approach to find the next uh, opening, if you will, to further the attack. 
and it was impressive. It, it was really really impressive. And I thought it to be simple in its philosophy and certainly uh, very, very effective. Now, after the game, I, I, I went and, uh, you know, took my notes. I'm like, well, how, how observant was I? Was this, was this uh, you know, something that uh, he, he was accustomed to doing? And, it, and as I did some research through the wonderful website called Phase of Play, um, you know, coaches, he's noted for his uh, innovative tactical approaches as the, as the piece cites here. Um, and he does use this idea of, you know, uh, up and back. He, he calls it up, back, and through vertical combinations. Uh, they try to move the ball vertically to a forward at, at the highest line first and then sets the ball back to an attacking partner. And then uh, there's, there's a moment where that target man up front runs behind the defensive line and they try to find that, that next option. And it was, it's quick. It's up, back. It's through. It's up, back. It's wide. It's up, back, and you know, you know, back, uh, you know, back through again. It's it's very, very simple, but very, very effective. Um, and again, in research, in in, in you know, phase of play, um, they talk about the benefits of simplicity and speed. And I noticed that before, you know, even doing the deep dive in terms of analysis, that it's this sim, it's simplicity, and it's speed. And they use just a very few few touches, few passes. Um, and with that speed, and with the minim, you know minimization of, of of passes, you know they they can quickly unsettle a, a very well organized defense, and they did that you know against the United States. Um, so it was interesting. Interesting. I, I have other notes, uh, other notes with, with the match, but um, you know the, the the response relative to his management style and these particular tactics has been pretty much well received. Uh, I pulled one quote off the net post match. Uh, one of the players, Matt Hummels, uh, spoke very highly of, uh, you know, uh, Julian Nagelsmann coach, coaching style. Um, he was uh, uh, quoted by saying he's, he's, a, he's a very good coach. His points are, are very clear. Um, he was very impressed, you know, as a player with the new coach. Um, he talks about there was a little uh, bit extra in the game than we thought in, in the first half. The U.S. had a bit too much room, as I kind of noted there a minute or so ago. And the key after the break was our ball possession, and we didn't leave ourselves exposed to counterattacks. Um, and yeah, you know, um, you know, he, he's pretty much spot on. You know, this it, it's a friendly, uh, and sometimes you you kind of put the score on aside a for a bit, and you look at the at the game as a whole. You look at the match as a whole. You look at players. You look at blocks. You look at the team. You look at transitional moments. You look at the you know, buildups. You look at everything. Essentially, is what I'm trying to say. You look at everything, and then you, you know, you have your ch your your check boxes, your, your the boxes that you check. Hey, we did this well, this well, mm, this one not so much, this one not so much. And at the end of it all, you you take all that information and then you prepare for the next match. And the next match is Ghana. Uh, while I record this, uh, you know, Ghana will be playing this evening, so I don't have have any reports on that. I will next week when we when I return with the GB Soccer Podcast. Um, but nice to see the U.S. men. I, I, I still have high hopes for uh, their development. There's still a lot of great players out there, to, of which uh, Greg Berhalter can choose from. And uh, I think exciting times remain. Um, but to close out, at the end of the day, you got to beat Germany's. You have to beat Germany's friendlies or in a tournament. Uh, you, you've got, at the very, very minimum, show that uh, for 90 minutes or 90-plus minutes that you can compete, compete with a team like that from beginning to end. The United States did not do that. That's a box they cannot check, at least in this particular match. Because, uh, you know, coming World Cup time, you know, you're going to face teams like this. You are going to face teams like this. So, um, 
Still a ways away before we get to a World Cup. Lots of soccer to be played, tournaments to be played for the U.S. men's national team. So there you have it, folks. My opening uh, here in the GP Soccer Podcast. Yes, I'm surviving Bruce Springsteen. Yes, I'm surviving Bruce Springsteen. Uh, we're going to break for a commercial. Uh, you know how that works. And on the other side of all that, conversation with the coach, with the great Tommy Geis from Massachusetts Youth Soccer. Don't you dare go anywhere. Cancer. We all know someone whose life has been impacted by this deadly disease. A friend, a colleague, a family member, someone in your community. No one is immune from it. But as each day passes, the fight continues to find a cure that one day will eradicate cancer from all our lives. One of the ways you can join the fight is through Red Card Cancer. Its mission is a call to action to help defeat the world's biggest opponent by uniting the global game of soccer in the fight against cancer. Together with the American Cancer Society, the soccer community is raising money and awareness for cancer research. If you or your soccer organization would like to support the American Cancer Society and Red Card Cancer, head over to redcardcanceracs.org as well as redcardcancer.org. Red Card Cancer, where a cure is our goal. Hi, this is Rob Herringer, and I'm the Director of Coaching Education at United Soccer Coaches, and you're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with host Giovanni Pacini. And welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, Conversation with the Coach. Well, hey there, folks. Giovanni Piccini here, host of the GP Soccer Podcast, and hosting this segment of Conversation with the Coach. So far, so good. Uh, the feedback uh, regarding uh, the guests we've had uh uh, up until this point, has been nothing short of terrific. Keep the emails coming in. I love hearing from it. And again, if you've got a question for me, something you'd like to uh, have me address with a guest on uh, Conversation with the Coach, gp4soccer at yahoo.com. We have a terrific guest today, and I do mean that. I just don't say that. We have a terrific guest today. He's a longtime friend. He's a longtime colleague, someone who I, I really look up to in terms of the ability to be a, a great teacher of the game. And that is Tommy Geis, who's the technical director of Massachusetts Youth Soccer. Uh, Tommy joined um, Mass Youth in 2010 after spending 20 years as an assistant director of coaching in Western PA and for four years as a director of coaching for an Anchorage, Alaska club. Had to be chilly up there. He holds the United U.S. Soccer A license and a national youth license. Tommy earned his bachelor's degree in business communications in 1992 at LaRoche College in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He has worked as a coach in both Alaska and PA West Olympic development programs and has worked as an ODP staff coach at the regional level uh, in both Region 2 and Region 4. In 2012 and 13, Tommy was the head coach uh, of the Mass Youth Soccer ODP under 13 boys teams. Tom Geis, my longtime friend, welcome to Conversation with the Coach. Thank you so much. It's definitely a pleasure to be here. And all those kind words, I must humbly say thank you for that. <laughs> Tommy, they're much deserved. They're much deserved. I, I don't. I don't blow smoke up the proverbial. You know where I. I, I those, <laughs> those are those are true and uh, and sincere words. Um, 
So you and I have chatted, um, you know, before uh, today's broadcast, before today's segment about, geez, what should we talk about? And um, we decided to, to to tackle the issue of managing child behavior, managing player de- player behavior, in particular at the grassroots level. I, I know when I deliver one of those courses, which are my favorite, by the way, you know, the 68s, the tens. Um, you know, I I have a, I do a pretty good job in terms of managing behavior, and coaches will go. How, how did you do that? How, how did you get them to do that? How did you get them to stop? How did you get them to come in? And I tell them like, well, it's, it's nothing magical. Uh, there's nothing magic about what Giovanni Puccini does. It's through training. It's through, you know, ongoing research and, and practice. And what I had going for me, Tom, was, was 24 years in education as a health and phys ed teacher. I had 24 years of practice of doing this. So when I bring it to the soccer field, it had, it had been done a million times prior. So in setting the table with that, Tom, let's let's kind of get going here. What are your what are your thoughts? What are your general thoughts um, to coaches when it comes to, in particular, grassroots managing behavior? What are some of the tips and advice you might want to give a coach uh, relative to to that aspect of, of teaching the game? Well, it's weird when you talk about grassroots coaches and how they manage children, if you will. And I think that's one of the key words that when we use the word player, it's interesting how children suddenly become a commodity as opposed to we have a group of children in front of us how do we manage them and it's weird for me is I don't have children I have tons of nieces and nephews like you I have years of experience working with the children but one of the first things if I'm meeting a group of coaches I rely on their knowledge it said you are all parents of the children that you're working with how do you act how do you manage behavior at home your child does not go from the kid that is bouncing off the wall, you know, snapping their siblings or causing problems, being goofy, hyper energetic. And then because we put a soccer shirt on them, that's not going to change. They are still those same children you have at home. We just change the environment that they happen to be in. So use your expertise as a parent slash coach potentially to realize that the children in front of you are not different because there's a, there's a jersey that they're wearing. I love that opening point, the commodity. I wrote this down in my show notes here. Commodity versus children. That is a fascinating view because I, I, you're spot on with that. There's something that happens to, uh, I guess, you know, parents' mindsets or coaches' mindsets. You put a jersey on them, all of a sudden they're expected to behave somehow differently. When in fact, they're the same kid, just in a different color jersey. Um, expectations. What would you share with a group of, of coaches of, of dealing with young kids when it comes to um, the expectations they should have when it comes to managing child behavior? One of the big ones, it's in, a, in a joking manner, managing the behaviors of the children is to consider yourself, remember the 10-year-old version of yourself. If the 10 or 12 year old version of yourself, and I'm going to a very low end of grassroots with that, but would the 10 or 12 year old version of yourself enjoy what you're doing in practice? And if the 10 or 12 year old version of yourself said, no, this is horrible, I would hate it. No, I'm not enjoying myself. Then we have to assume that the children that you're working with, they're still thinking the same thing. And to assume that they say, well, they'll appreciate it 10 years from now, They may not still be involved in the game 10 years from now because of what's happening now. So we have to always put at the forefront, are the children enjoying themselves? Because that's a basic need of a child, enjoyment. 
And in the process of that, we hope that there's also some development that happens along the way also. But development can happen at the spite of enjoyment. And enjoyment, to a degree, can't happen independently without development because then it's, you know, why do soccer? So we have to try to find a balance in there that how can we help the children enjoy the environment and maybe learn a little soccer as they go through it. But then we also have to consider the children. How old are they? What do they enjoy? What do they outside of soccer? You know, who are they? What about soccer actually makes sense to them? The game we see on TV does not make sense. It's it's in a joking manner. I always love the coaches that said, well, we do something in our training session with 10, 12, even 16-year-old kids because Barcelona does it or Man City does it. And at the end of the day, that's not recognizing the environment that you're in. That's not the players that they have. That's not uh, the level of understanding. That's not the level of appreciation. You mentioned uh, it should be an enjoyable experience. And I scribbled down. This is this is a word for me that is not used enough. It's a word for me that is not on, at the forefront of, of every coach's brain. And that's fun fun and i preach i preach this uh extensively about having fun whether you're with the u6s or you're a high school team or college heck i've spoken to players who play for national teams they want to have fun as well um share with my audience the importance of creating an enjoyable experience i call it the infusion of joy while still being able to effectively teach the game or, or 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 conduct a training session because oftentimes you think well if they have fun it somehow dilutes the the seriousness of what i'm trying to do and i say well no no if you do it well enough you can have fun while still teaching what what, what would you share with my audience on, on, along those lines well the enjoyment aspect comes to we live in a very drill oriented society because it's easy we could always as a coach we're always in control of a drill because decisions are somewhat lacking and so we just have to go with what's on paper what we see what's not necessarily the outcome or how they solve a, a problem many times with coaches i ask them the question if you have children why do you think your children you you'd have a tough time finding a group of children that says mom dad can I borrow a stack of cones so my me and my friends could go in the backyard and set up a drill? And the coaches ultimately laugh at that, said, why do you think children don't ask you to set up their own types of drills? And across the board, the coaches say, because drills are boring. They're kind of monotonous. They're maybe you could teach something in a drill, but it's very limited to what you could teach. You know, it's very difficult to teach decision making. Generally, fun for children is problem solving, getting out there now, soccer problem solving. So how can we get a chance to execute on this? Or, you know, we're going to collectively try to solve this problem or this situation that you pose to us. And then the children have to try to collaborate to do that, as opposed to just responding to what the coach is telling them to do. So sometimes as a coach, you turn it over and say, Okay, the four of you and the four of you and the four of you. Here's a situation. Take a moment, discuss it with your group. Tell me how you're going to solve it. Let's see what you can come up with. 
and then try it. Put it out there in the play. That turns the the practice into a game or an adventure, really, because they get to solve their problems based on how they view the game. I would finish that with the benefit to the coach is not whether you agree or disagree with what they're actually doing or their solution that they come up with is this tells you exactly where they're at, where they're what their read is, what their understanding level is. So we know that if we're going to guide them, that helps us establish a starting point where I can start nudging them in a certain direction. It's a great point. And you touched upon such a, a crucial element when we talk about development of players at this particular level, and that is getting away uh, from drill. And that's that's in a, you know that's that's the word we we have heard for so many years and, and maybe far too long. And getting into coaches to be able to create games where kids can play and not only just getting the games but being able to create games with maybe constraints uh different challenges and then as you you put so very well don't give them any answers ask them you know send them send them out play figure it out maybe bring them back in uh and say well you know we 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 offered up these constraints or these challenges or you know these twists to your game How do, what happened uh, was it a challenge? Did you able? We were able to figure it out, um, and then you send them back on their merry way um, for them to to see if they have, have then figured it out. And your role as the coach is just to sit back and and, and watch. Uh, it's such an important point, Tom. Um, to getting more more, more uh, activities that are that are play driven versus drill driven. Um, you know, super important. And and listening and watching more than more than anything else. And you're kind of dovetailing that. In your travels, and you do extensive work with coach development, coach education, delivery of courses. Do you get the sense that coaches out there are starting to change the mindset a little bit from getting away from the drill, you know, lines and that type of thing, to embracing and have the capacity to to create game like environments for the kids? What are your thoughts on that one? I do believe that they're doing that through coaching education is helping. Having said that. As you are well aware, there are no constants in the game of soccer. So coaches often say, we'll ask the question, are you telling us that we're never allowed to do a drill no matter what happens in soccer? It's like, no, that's not what we're saying at all. There is a time and a place for everything that you might want to put out there within reason. You know, drills are somewhat soccer-ish, but there's only certain things that you could teach. So we do recognize that coaches through grassroots coaching education are learning that the game is what's fun for the children. And we know that as soon as we put a group of kids on the field and they said, well, there's no hiding it. Children need to learn everything. You know, whether you've been playing the game for two years, three years, five years, whatever that length of time is. There is so much about the game to learn. They're just not going to learn it in one day. So as we go through that process and we start creating the situations for the children to solve, they start actually learning the game better. And then we can start applying the tools. So a long answer to your short question is, yes, the coaches very much are learning, are getting much better at trying to create a more game-like environment for the kids and they find out that the kids actually tend to enjoy practice more when it's more games tend to be more energetic the energy level seems to be higher so i think that they enjoy that 
Well, sure. They're, they're you know, at, at the risk of selling oversimplifying it, they're playing a game. And who doesn't like playing a game, whether you're a six-year-old or two old guys like us? You like to go out and play. There's joy in playing. And effective coaches understand that and then have the the ability, hopefully, to alter those playing environments without diminishing the joy in it all uh, and, and, and enabling kids to maybe try something else or do something else or, or bring them to another another level, maybe technically or tactically, whatever. Um, it's a game. It's fun. So, I mean, there's an old saying that says, catch them being good. Catch them being good. What are your thoughts on that when we talk about managing child behavior or player behavior? I would suggest that there is should always be some balance involved. So every coaching point we make should not be to tear down a player or point out what is the unwanted behavior. So catch them being good is identify when they do get it and celebrate it. Now, having said that, we cannot the children are not going to develop if all we do is identify the good moments. Sometimes we might need to identify some areas of growth. And it's, as we said, as I mentioned before, there, there are no, there's very few times you can look at it said always or never in the game of soccer. So there are times where children make mistakes, but are they trying to solve something? And if they're trying to solve something, that's not a bad thing that they're doing. Let's celebrate what they tried to do or recognize we saw what you're trying to do. But part of coaching is trying to help them understand what they were trying to do, how they could either do that better or explore some other choices out there. So we could catch them when they're doing something well or catch them in a moment where we could discuss what they were trying to do and see if we could help them improve upon that. And I would suggest very rarely does a player make a decision that's an absolute just disaster. Yes, that does happen, but is it a one-off moment? Is it the one that we really need to draw attention to? Is it something we could just pull the player aside and maybe have a brief conversation, whether it is a soccer decision, whether it is a behavioral issue, wherever, whatever it might be? Um, celebrate the successes. Use the what might be considered a breakdown as a growth potential through discussion. And occasionally when the things happen that are disasters as a coach that we might perceive as disasters, before we label it as that was a terrible decision or a terrible choice, well, what was the child trying to do? What did they see? What were they attempting to put out? If the child comes back and says, makes a response. I just wanted to get the ball as far away from my goal as I could. I had no rhyme or reason behind it. I said, well, from a coaching standpoint, that's telling you where your coaching point needs to start. Helping the player understand what they're, why they're doing what they're doing, as opposed to just assuming things are right or wrong. You know, Tom, one of the questions aside from, you know, how do I, how do I manage the group as a whole? Typically the second inquiry or the second uh, perplexing problem that, that comes my way is, gee, I, I've got this kid on my team, you know, he's, well, he just doesn't pay attention. He's always getting in trouble. He's, he's poking the other players. He's, his behavior is just, you know, singularly uh, distracting to the other players and to what we're trying to do here as a team. 
what advice might you give the coach who's got that that kid who's um you know he, he's a bit troublesome he's he's he's, a, he's a singularly a behavioral issue well that's about the most loaded question you've given all day <laughs> <laughs> listen i don't mess around tom i don't mess around i i would say that the biggest concept that a coach has to recognize is every behavior has a reason behind it and there's this concept in coaching is get to know your players understand your players the children that are in front of you what makes them tick what's their driving force why are they there at soccer you know are they running late when they're always running late well there's a reason behind that and do we put them down in those situations or welcome them to practice the same way we'd welcome the first child that comes to practice and as it moves on, have the discussions with the player to find out what makes them tick. The other thing that really drives a player, something that we had mentioned before, is that if you put them into small groups and have them have leadership roles or have them solve any situation, now that player's behavior is shared with his team. So it's noticeable with his teammates and not in a bashing way, but his teammates can help generate the discussion, have that child maybe take leadership responsibility. You know, why is, if that child is there because mom and dad dropped them off and coaching is the cheapest form of babysitting they could find, well, then it's a different approach. If we're going to have them stand still and pay attention to us, that may not be something that's in their real life environment that could be an issue that they have in school that could be an issue that they have at home same situations so find out what's driving that if it really gets to the point that it is very disruptive get the parents involved but not as a discipline approach but ask the parents who i'd mentioned at the very beginning are experts on what drives their child and maybe use those to help you know sometimes it is the kid, the child might be pleasant for eight hours a day, but you're the ninth hour of the day. So what are some tips and tricks that the parents use to help get them along the way? Uh, ultimately, to make a long story short, once again, it is without knowing who the child is in front of you, without knowing what makes them tick and what motivates them, it's really hard to drive behavior and get it to more of a desired behavior instead of a, the the current behavior. Spot on, my friend. Absolutely spot on. A phrase that I oftentimes use is know the nature of your beast. Know the nature of the beast collectively as a group. But, you know, in this case here, we're talking about the individual kid who might be having some difficulties. Know the nature of that beast. And you you, you hit it right on the head. Talk to the parents, you know, uh, you know, seek out other people in his or her sphere, world, and to see what issues are going on. I know when I was a teacher, you know, we, we were we were lucky. I mean, if I had a, a, a problematic kid in my health or phys ed class, I could go to guidance and I could I could I could get you know background information on, on that student, and then go back to class or to the gymnasium better armed, you know, on, on how to deal with that with that uh, student, because I was able to go to to a guidance a guidance counselor. Now parents don't you know coaches don't have that ability, but you can go to a parent. You can go to a parent. That's absolutely spot on. Tom, guys, we we could talk for hours on this, and you know maybe we should. Um, any closing thoughts as we wrap up this segment of the GP Soccer Podcast in conversation with the coach? Final bits of, of wisdom for 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 parents out there or coaches 
when it comes to managing the behavior of kids, infusing joy in the game um, for everyone who's involved involved in the sport of soccer. The only closing thing I would put in is what I'm quite sure you're well aware of also is the true test of whether or not you're a good coach is not your number of championships you have or not your number of undefeated seasons because for the most part, anybody who played soccer growing up has no idea what their record was throughout the career of their game. But the fact that we are both still involved in the game suggests that we have good mentors or good leaders or good coaches in our past that help keep us in the game. So if you are going to be, if you want to measure your ability to coach, measure by the number of kids who sign up for the next season. And if all the children are coming back and they enjoyed it, and this is what the sport that they want to stay with, then you know you had a positive impact on them moving forward. And lastly, Tommy, if people wanted to learn more about Massachusetts soccer, uh, they wanted to contact you, what's the best way to find out about all the great things that are going on with Massachusetts soccer? MAYouthSoccer.org. And usually it's the best place to go to is to our website because we have an incredible full-time staff that if you have an issue in soccer, whatever that issue might be, whether it's a coaching issue or administrative issue or safe sport issue or anything that you might have to do in the game, we have people on staff that can help you with, help you solve that or help you get the answers that you are trying, that you are looking for. And if the person that you happen to reach out to doesn't know the answer, they will know who to send it to next to make sure you are best taken care of. So Mashu's Soccer is really the proverbial resource of helping you with all your soccer needs. And that's not restricted just for folks in Massachusetts. Now, I have a global audience. So if you're in another country, um, you can very easily uh, you know, go to the Master Soccer website and, 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 and discover a boundless amount of, of information and some terrific, terrific uh, coaches and administrators that uh, you know, they, they, can, they can answer your questions. Tom Geis, uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on Conversation with the Coach and the GP Soccer Podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Okay, we're going to break for a commercial, folks. You know how that works. And on the other side of the commercial break, uh, we're going to get into Coach's Corner. Giovanni Puccini here, GP Soccer Podcast. Conversation with the coach. Don't you dare go anywhere. In the Soccer Coach's Toolkit, those who teach the game will find a wealth of coaching activities to improve, stimulate, and provide enjoyment for players of all ages and abilities. UEFA B licensed coach and Chelsea FC Player Development Center head coach Rob Ellis has drawn on more than 20 years of soccer coaching and physical education teaching experience to provide only those activities he has successfully used time and time again to engage and inspire his players. Each activity is graded from beginner to advanced, and they foster fresh and exciting ideas to coach the main techniques and tactics of soccer. The 252 coaching activities included in the Soccer Coaches Toolkit are also accompanied by an easy-to-understand description and diagram. The activities require only basic coaching equipment and can be adapted to challenge players of varying ability levels and needs. Soccer coaches at all levels of the game can use the activities to create one-off sessions for their players or use the activities to deliver regular sessions as part of a competitive training program. It is an ideal resource for both grassroots and elite youth coaches and will enhance both the players' and teams' development. The book is on sale worldwide and has scored a massive hit with professional coaches and players alike. 
Former Tottenham Hotspur youth coach John Rowan described the soccer coach's toolkit as an astounding book. I consider it the Bible of soccer coaching. Head of football methodology at Monaco said of the soccer coach's toolkit, it is a very useful book for coaches to widen their session database and provide variety in their coaching. Head of soccer development at Christ College Secondary School in London, Daniel Nielsen called the soccer coach's toolkit a truly comprehensive library of drills and sessions for the whole spectrum of soccer techniques and tactics. In addition, the book has already been purchased and endorsed by former Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sunderland defender Jody Craddock, as well as ex-Leicester City striker Trevor Benjamin and Sutton United defender Joe Kizzy. The Soccer Coach's Toolkit is the ticket to a lifetime of soccer coaching ideas, a must-book to include in your soccer coaching library. And welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, Coach's Corner, where you'll find great tips and advice on how to teach the great game of soccer. Hi, this is Bill Steffen. I am uh, an assistant professor at Wingate University in Wingate, North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte. Um, and it's my pleasure to be on the GP Soccer Podcast, Coach's Corner. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about um, the value of live service for goalkeepers when you're training goalkeepers. Um, I still train some goalkeepers and I'm still uh, actively interested in new techniques and new ideas in terms of training goalkeepers. And some of the things I see, um, I'm not sure of the value or I think it displaces something that may be of more value. Um, when you are a goalkeeper, one of the things that I think older experienced goalkeepers have come to realize through their careers is how important it is to read the shooter and to spend time um, understanding where the shooter is going to uh, be shooting, how they're going to be shooting, what type of a shot, are they going to bend it, are they going to drive it, based on the shooter's positioning and their body as they approach the ball. Um, and I think when you take that away, you are severely limiting your goalkeeper's ability to make saves. Um, in the game, the ball travels, there are many instances when the ball travels too fast for a goalkeeper to react. There's no way, unless you get hit, there's no way for the goalkeeper to make the save. Unless the goalkeeper reads the shot before the shot actually leaves the foot of the striker. So I think reading the, the shot, reading the body position and the body language and so forth of this of the striker is tremendously important. Um, I understand, and I, I would think that there are times when things like as a rebounder or a blocker uh, are helpful in getting a goalkeeper to move in a certain direction and then changing that direction based on, you know, a, a forward intercepting the ball or a deflection, things like that. Um, but I think that that needs to be a limit. Um, there needs to be a limit on that. To get the fundamental movements down, sure. But to actually make saves, I think the goalkeeper needs to see the shape of the of, of the forward, see the way they are approaching the ball. Are their shoulders low? That means they're probably going to drive the ball. If their hips are open and their shoulders are back, they're probably going to bend the ball. If the ball is far out in front of them, they're probably going to drive it. If the ball is closest to them, they're probably, if the ball is underneath them, they're probably going to look to curl it. And these are such tremendous things for a goalkeeper that um, I think that sometimes you get overlooked with the, with the, the next uh, the next new training instrument or utensil, so to speak. Uh, the best utensil is a, a, a forward. Um, I would occasionally do uh, uh, exercises with goalkeepers where I just called it shooting rhythm, where I basically would just shoot ball after ball without a pause. Strike a ball, back up, strike a ball, back up, strike a ball, back up, strike a ball, back up. 
And the value in that was they were reading my shape every time. There was additional value in that, and that there was no time for the goalkeeper to dwell or just to sulk about a, a ball that got played by. And so um, I thought repeating that often was a very good tool. Um, additionally, <laughs> uh, goes back to a conversation. This, you know, my thoughts go back to a conversation I had with Greg Kenny, uh, a very good goalkeeper coach in the New York area. Um, about what do you do when a player whiffs on a strike? And we both said, well, yeah, you kind of fall forward. Because we were moving based on what that forward anticipated doing, we would move in relation to that. We would get the rhythm of the shooter. And by seeing a live shooter, we developed the rhythm of now I know when I need to set. When I hit my pre-stretch before I'm going to move, I want to take that step and line my feet up and also get into a slight eccentric contraction immediately before I concentrically contract to make the save. And so I think getting that rhythm is very dependent on seeing live shooter shoot. And from a jugs machine or from uh, other machines, uh, it's just not developed. It's just not doable. Um, anyway, I hope I've made a good case for uh, using live shooters at all times possible and the rationale behind that. Um, once again, I'm Bill Steffen, and that's today's coaching tip here on the GP Soccer Podcast Coaches Corner. This is Soccer News and Analysis with Giovanni Puccini. Qatari banker Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani is withdrawing his offer to buy the story Premier League club, Manchester United, a person with knowledge of the process told the Associated Press. This per the person spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the confidentiality restrictions. Along with British billionaire Jim Ratcliffe, Sheikh Jassim was one of two bidders to publicly declare their intention to buy, to buy out the Glazer family. The person also said that Sheikh Jassim's bid was almost double United's 3.2 billion market valuation. Ollie Watkins continued his hot goal-scoring streak to fire England to a 1-0 victory against Australia at Wembley Stadium. Watkins, 25, has already scored two hat-tricks for Aston Villa this season, has seized his chance to make an impression ahead of next year's European Championship. It was his first England appearance for 19 months. Kylian Mbappe helped France seal qualifications for next year's European Championship by scoring twice in a 2-1 win over the Netherlands for a perfect sixth win in Group B. It was a huge week on the 2023 MLS attendance front as week 29 was led by a record crowd for the Chicago Fire, having to do with the Messi effect, and good crowds for Orlando, Inter-Miami, and New York Red Bulls. Overall, MLS attendance is up 5% over the 2022 attendance. The following are the top 10 MLS attendance numbers and are current as of October the 8th. They are based upon the MLS website, in-game announcements, and press releases and media reports. In first position, we have Atlanta United, averaging 47,526 fans. Number two, Charlotte FC at 33,634. Number three, Seattle Sounders with 32,161. Number four, Nashville Soccer Club, 28,314. FC Cincinnati at 25,358. Toronto FC, 25,169. The LA Galaxy, 24,442. The Portland Timbers, 22,970. Number nine, New England Revolution at 22,052. And rounding out the top 10, 
St. Louis Soccer Club at 22,423. Nicholas Fulsberg and Jamal Museala scored three minutes apart early in the second half, and Germany rallied to beat the United States men's soccer team 3-1 in a rainy exhibition in East Hartford, Connecticut. In and it was Giorena's first, first game back with coach Greg Balter, Berhalter following the eruption of their family feud at last year's World Cup. Christian Pulisic pulled the 11th-ranked United States ahead in the 27th minute, but Ilke Gudigan tied it in the 39th. Reina played the first half in his first start since fracturing his right leg in a CONCACAF Nations League match in June. The U.S., which has not lost by two has not lost by two goals after scoring first in the 2011 CONCACAF Gold Cup final against Mexico. More than 10 months after the Reina family pressured U.S. Soccer, the U.S. Soccer Federation staff to give more playing time to Gio Reina at the World Cup, the team has not yet adopted rules to prevent similar lobbying. Quote, there's something that U.S. soccer leadership is discussing, and as of now, nothing's been put into place, Coach Greg Berhalter said Monday, a day ahead of the Americans' exhibition match against Ghana. Giorena didn't play in the Americans' World Cup opener against Wales on November 25th. The following day, the midfield's father, former U.S. captain Claudio Arena, sent a text message to then-U.S. Soccer, US soccer sporting director Ernie Stewart, according to a report last March for the Federation by the firm Alston and Bird. Quote, what a complete and utter joke, Claudio Arena texted. Quote, our family is disgusted in case you are wondering, disgusted at how a coach is allowed to never be challenged and do whatever he wants. Claudia Arena sent a text message to then general manager Brian McBride that said, quote, our entire family is disgusted, angry, and done with you guys. Don't expect nice comments from anyone in our family about U.S. soccer. I'm being transparent to you, not like the political clown show of the Federation, end quote. The report details complaints from the Reina family dating back to 2016. Quote, witnesses reported that Mr. Reina's past actions involved attempts to influence decisions by U.S. soccer officials and staff concerning his children on issues ranging from travel arrangements to the impact of on-pitch refereeing decisions, Alston and Bird also wrote. Giorena, a 20-year-old midfielder, made second-half appearances against England and the Netherlands at the World Cup for a total of 53 minutes. And as you know, folks, uh, you know I offer some analysis. Sometimes I don't, but I'm going to beat the dead horse here on that last story. Uh, it is still as shocking to me, it is still astonishing to me, that at the very highest levels, literally the highest levels, uh, our national team uh, is dealing with, uh, sadly, a youth soccer type of antics. Um, this has not gone away for the very simple reason, as the as the story uh, stated to you, there are no regulations, there's no mandates, there's no parameters by which um, U.S. soccer is going to deal with this type of thing going forward. And until it does, this may happen again. Um, but it's part, as you very well know, I'm beating a dead horse here, I apologize. This is part of a larger issue that is taking place across our country where parents overstep the proverbial bounds and shoot their mouths off about things they have no business shooting their mouths off about. Um, you'd be very interested to see how this all transpired, both at the U.S. national team level and across youth sports here in the United States of America. We're going to break, we're going to go right into the EPL and your report with the great Rob Ellis. Don't you dare go anywhere.
Welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, English and European Football Roundup, with your host, Rob Ellis. Hi everyone and greetings from London. This is Rob Ellis bringing you episode 7 of my Euro Soccer Roundup on the ever-entertaining GP Soccer Podcast. Last week, we all clocked up a few air miles as we travelled between Holland, Belgium and Turkey to catch up on the news from their domestic leagues. For today's episode, we need nothing more than our bus passes to experience the journey, as we are staying in the UK to look at the setup of youth soccer and how British children experience the current talent identification system. Over many years, I've been involved in the structure and the delivery of youth soccer in London, from grassroots to professional club academy level. I've coached too many youth soccer teams to mention and spent thousand upon thousand of hours working with junior soccer players. Along the way, I spent 15 years as a high school PE teacher, which pushed me deeper into the school soccer system and broadened my understanding of the national youth soccer setup. In today's show, there is a limit to how much ground I can cover, and so I'll try to focus on a few critical topics. Firstly, I want to describe how the structure of professional clubs at youth level affects young players' progress, the role that high school soccer plays or does not play in the development of youth soccer, and finally, the rise of the private soccer academy and how they affect the progression through youth soccer in the United Kingdom. One of the most noticeable changes in British youth soccer over the past 15 years is the amount of children connected to professional clubs. I went to high or secondary school, as we call it, between 1989 and 1994. It was an all-boys school in inner London, full of soccer-mad kids that had a decent reputation for soccer performance. There were some very good players in my year group, but two boys stood out, and at that time were clearly the best players in the year group. One of the boys was a schoolboy Arsenal player, and the other a schoolboy Tottenham player. Both boys represented their respective clubs in competitive FA-affiliated fixtures, and had signed schoolboy forms that meant they were officially junior professional soccer players. At that time, it was quite normal to have between one to two schoolboys from each high school year group playing for professional clubs across London. I grew up understanding the difference between good players and very good players, and I could see a gap between the boys that were playing for professional clubs and those that were just close to playing for professional clubs. The message from the clubs to youth players was harsh, but probably fair. In a nutshell, only the best will do. Some 30 years on, and the reality is no different in the message, however, the structure of youth soccer in the UK now suggests that more young players are in with a chance of a professional career than in years gone by. Last year, I did a school assembly, and a show of hands told me that 11 boys in one year group claimed to play for a professional club. This did not surprise me. Many schools that I've either worked at or coached in have a similar number of players in each year group that claim to play for a professional club. Today, there are 92 professional clubs in the English Football League, which is exactly the same number as when I started high school in 1989. 
Her average squad size, particularly in the Premier League, has grown. In the 80s and 90s, some top-flight teams survived the season with as few as 16 squad players. Today, we can probably add 10 to that figure for the average Premier League squad size. From that rough estimate, we can deduce that in effect there are approximately 900, at most, extra professional contracts on offer. Yes, this is a big increase, but it does not tally up with the huge excess of young players associated to professional clubs. In England and Wales alone, the number of young players sampling professional club training is potentially tens of thousands more than 20 to 30 years ago. Many, in fact the majority of EFL clubs now, can cater for this excess due to their provision of FDCs, Football Development Centres, or PDCs, Player Development Centres, as they are also known. FDCs are now part of the player pathway system from grassroots club soccer to academy soccer. The thinking goes that talented youth players that have impressed for their grassroots team, or in many cases that have attended sessions as part of professional soccer clubs community programs and done well in those sessions, get rewarded with an FDC place. Typically, the child will attend 10 weekly sessions with a community coach, and at the end of the 10-week block, will either be let go, retained for another 10 weeks of training, sent on to an advanced FDC, where the best performing FDC players are sent for closer inspection, or given an academy trial. I've worked in FDCs and advanced FDCs for many years at numerous EFL clubs. In my experiences, the vast majority of FDC players were retained for initially a further 10 weeks, and then a seemingly indefinite period of time. Few were released unless they were clearly out of their depth, and a remarkably small percentage were sent on for academy trials. So small, in fact, that ultimately, just like when I was at school, the number of players playing academy level and formally connected to professional clubs is still more like one to two per each high school year group. This view of FDCs could offer a rather futile outlook based on outcomes, without doubt, it's worth questioning how close the average FDC player will ever get to proper professional youth soccer. It could also be argued, however, that the more children that play regularly with other talented youngsters and that receive planned and progressive coaching from qualified and internally monitored coaches, the better. It is likely to improve the playing standard of those children, not at elite level, which benefits the standard of grassroots football, and gives those children a platform to push off from for a professional contract as they grow older, or to play a good standard of semi-professional soccer. School soccer comes under the umbrella of grassroots, and in the UK, the standard of provision, teams and players at school level varies wildly. Thanks to the enthusiasm of school players and some very committed PE teachers, school training and fixtures provide some children with their only source of organised soccer. The more talented school players are probably less likely to value school soccer in the way that they did 30 to 40 years ago, when being selected for the school team was a noteworthy achievement. For many children, it still is. However, the increased external provision provided by FDCs and privately run soccer academies means that some advanced school players do not have the time or inclination to represent the school team. This of course lowers the standard of school soccer at many schools. 
Thankfully, there are still many schools that instill a pride in representing the school team, which helps to retain the best players. When this happens, school soccer in the UK can produce some very high quality matches, many of which I've observed in the latter stages of the English Schools Football Association annual cup competition. Partly as a result of, but also contributing to the reduced participation in elite level school soccer players are the rise of privately owned soccer academies. Whereas 10 to 20 years ago, many coaches that were passionate about developing young players would try to start up and enter a grassroots league with their own team using small match fees funded by players and their parents to cover expenses, many coaches now simply offer training sessions where the parents pay the coach directly. Some private academies are in competitive leagues and from time to time may play a showcase fixture against a professional FDC or very rarely against a professional academy. The hook for enrolment, meaning that some private academy places are very competitive and that also can attract very talented players, is the carrot of a pathway into professional youth soccer. The typical private academy coach may possibly be working for a number of professional clubs on an ad hoc basis or more likely has worked for professional clubs in the past but retains contacts at those clubs and that is the carrot. The belief that the coach's contacts can queue jump the FDC system and guarantee an academy trial fuels the drive of many young players and crucially their parents who pay deep from their pockets to keep the dream alive. I've seen well-run and well-coached private academies for sure and many, sadly, that make a mockery of what an academy actually means, so shoddy is the coaching. The standard can fluctuate hugely because the only method by which they are assessed is the view of the parents and the players, unlike schools who are assessed by Ofsted and FDCs that are monitored by the Football Association. This is a huge topic for exploration, and although today only breaks the surface, I hope you all in the States found the episode informative Maybe we'll come back to it at a later date for further exploration. Until next time, it's goodbye from London. I look forward to speaking to you all next week. Thanks so much there, Rob. Once again, terrific news analysis and news uh, from the terrific Rob Ellis. Next week's show, uh, Conversation with the Coach, we'll have Rob Herringer, uh, recently named the Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches. Um, We're going to talk about United Soccer Coaches and Coaching Education and in the uh, coach's corner, Frank Martin, something I, I pulled off the net uh, regarding appropriate behavior in youth sports. Well, ladies and gentlemen, my goodness, that's our show for today. If you like what you hear, please tell everyone. Remember, you can follow the GP Soccer Podcast all over social media, and new episodes are available every Wednesday morning. If you've got a question that you'd like to have answered on the coach's corner, email me at gp4soccer, and that's the number four, at yahoo.com. This is your host, Giovanni Puccini of the GP Soccer Podcast, and I will catch you later. 